Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bill Lee with us now from Washington. William Lee was Citigroup for years and now at the Milken uh, Institute. Bill, it, it, to me, it looks like a trade war. I think there's really no other way to put it. Yeah, uh, it, and, and it's a trade there. skirmish, Tom, right? The skirmish well, is to, to get people's attention so that they can be really attentive at the bargaining table. And I, I, my hope and prayer is that that is where the end game is going, is what are we going to be negotiating yeah, over? I think the media is poorly explaining it. To use John's numbers, 50, 100, 100 billion, but then there's a tariff on that if it's 5% or 1% or 3% or 10, can it really be 25%? Are we are we going back to days of 25% tariffs? I, I don't think we'll ever revisit the smooth holidays where it's tariff on top of tariffs and you get these huge percentages. And, and you know, when you get a lot of small percentages together, that's real money we're talking about. And so so I, I think that's kind of escalation we've learned the lessons from in history and everyone has learned them, even in high school. But one of the things that we need to keep in mind is we uh, the, 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 the negotiating strategy is you've got to get the attention of the other side. And, and the 2025 agenda of China is biomedicine, robotics, high-tech stuff and and the fact that we even touch on their on their prize possessions uh, brings their attention to the table and I think that's the strategy of the administration going forward and bill just a backdrop to all of this the US economy looking rock solid the Chinese economy looking a little bit softer talk to me about what's happening there thank you I I think one of the things that we keep we forget is first China's half the size of the US and number two China's growth is based upon massive overinvestment the the, the essentially when, when you think about the investment to GDP ratios in in China it's multiples of what the US has. Now, that adds to their productivity. Yes, it gives them that great advantage going forward, but it's deprived the citizens of a lot of consumption. And and the Xi, the Xi administration recognizes that they have to address consumption in China. And so, so that's where I think the U.S. has got some advantages because we know that yeah. they need more consumption goods and services, high-tech uh, services of the sort of 5G type, type environment. And, and quite frankly, in that race, in the 5G world race, China and the U.S. are starting at the same place in the starting line. There's no advantage U.S. has over them. In fact, I think the Chinese have advantages over us. So, so they, they, But the domestic market is where the U.S. wants to go, and our domestic market is where the Chinese want to go with their 5G services. And now the, 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 the game is how do we set the rules of trade going forward? So, Bill, I want to sort of explore what this means for the macro backdrop. In early 2016, the world economy is on the rocks. Some people predict in a recession, and the response globally was as follows. The Fed completely capitulated on its plans to raise interest rates that year multiple times, and the ECB expanded QE and did all kinds of things. The Chinese put the foot to the pedal, right to the floor, to boost credit as well. Now we're starting to see those forces reverse. 2017 was global synchronized growth. 2018 looks a bit more fragile, and the things that boosted things through 16 are starting to reverse. Does that concern you a little bit, Bill? Well, what's concerning is the nature of growth right now and going forward. U.S. is going to be the engine of growth for the global economy. Well, that's, that, that myth of synchronized growth that we saw before was – 
Europe trying to get a two-handle on growth, right? I mean, we, we're talking about the U.S. not being able to get three and four handles. The, the European economy, because of the, uh, the, the eurosclerosis that it's always had, uh, has never been able to get a two-handle or I- anything better and to sustain a two-handle. And, and, and we're seeing evidence that that is not going to happen yet again, and they can revert back to this subpar growth. Yeah. Uh, Bill, in the time we've got left to do on NAFTA, we've got Mexican peso nearing 21. It's been there before. But this has been a real weakening of peso. Is that part of a collapsed NAFTA debate, or is that just about Draghi and central bank divergence? Uh, elements of both, I think. The, 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 the NAFTA negotiations has gotten a lot of uncertainty in it because now we start to hear about bilateral deals with Canada and, and, and Mexico. But I think the key to the, the, to the peso is like every other emerging market uh, currency is when the U.S. magnet for global capital sucks in everything and the dollar strengthens, that means that the emerging market currencies are going to collapse more than the developed market economies uh, because the U.S. continues to be the center for capital markets and capital flows. And every entrepreneur out there knows yeah. that you're not going to go to Argentina to raise capital. You're going to come to the New York Stock Exchange and list there. And, and <clears> even <throat> as U.S. firms right. are going to private capital, foreign firms are coming to list more and more in the U.S. Billy, thank you so much. From our Washington Bureau 99.1 FM. Uh, and, of course, with the Milken uh, Institute. Uh, this is a joy, another exceptionally strong briefing from Foreign Affairs Magazine. Which world are we living in? Is it the world of uh, the Red Sox? Is it the world of Yankees? No, it's certainly not the world of the New York Mets. For those that follow baseball, it is the foreign policy world that we live in. Uh, Now, Gideon Rose is with us with his new Foreign Affairs magazine. The essay from Graham Allison with his important book a year ago, Destined for War, is stunning. We had the Soviet Union. Thus, we had a space race because we were competing with the Soviet Union. And we had the development of what we know is our foreign policy because we were competing with the Soviet Union. Then there was an interlude. And your whole issue is about the now what? What is the now what? Well, so this is a great question. Over the last couple of years, a lot of the certainties and assumptions that people had on all sides of the spectrum had brought to the debate over American foreign policy, the international economy, the future of the global political system have basically been upended by voters in uh, Western countries who have overturned uh, Brexit and uh, uh Trump's election and uh, a bunch of different policies and a bunch of and, a, and a, 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 the rise of populist nationalism and problems in the liberal international order. Basically, what that means is all bets are off going forward and everybody is riled up and things are very turbulent. But the question of what actually is driving all the turbulence and where things will go is unknown. And so what we did is we tried to scope out the future by offering six potential narratives of what is the turmoil and change that we're living in. Where is it going? And the argument here is some of the people say it's just the return of great power politics, like Graham Allison. And we have a wonderful piece by Steve Kotkin about, look, what you thought of as the liberal international order was just the American moment of great power, which we organized in our way. Uh, 
Others saying, no, all the critics of the American order in the post-war system have been wrong in the past. This too shall pass. Others saying, no, it's tribalism that's dominant now. Amy Chua from Yale has a good argument in that regard. No, others say Marx was actually not wrong, but just early. What did you expect from capitalism? You know, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting screwed, and everybody's rising yeah. up in protest. So it's an attempt to scope out what is the future that we're living in. And we don't, the, the real answer right now is we don't know, and that's why this is an and interesting also, moment. And John, what's so interesting with the week that you and I have had, and really the two weeks we've had, yeah. is we're sort of jumping from moment to moment. Well, let's hope the future's not socialism, Gideon. Well, you look at Corbyn and uh, 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 you know Sanders and a bunch of people in the U.S. Uh, there are ideas. Everybody seems to agree that the old existing ideas haven't worked, and people are searching for new ideas. But no one has good new ideas yet. So well, we have to hope that the mistakes don't get repeated. Socialism certainly isn't a new idea. It's a failed experiment. Isn't yeah, it, but in I would have thought countries. Smoot Hawley and and international tariffs and a trade war were old ideas that we rejected as well. And so both right and left seem to be going back to the bad old uh, ideas of the past rather than coming up with new ones for the twenty first century. Do you really think we're going back towards Smoot Hawley? Are well, we this is a great question. To that? So the big question on trade policy now is, is trade policy going to follow the Iran model or the Korea model? A year ago, the Trump administration made the entire world think that it was on the brink of a nuclear war in Korea. And it turns out that they were responding to a real problem just by generating a lot of hoopla and then walked away with a photo op and no actual deal and some headlines. If that ultimately is what happens on trade, then you'll end up with a compromise just like you ended up with a compromise in Korea and it's fine. On Iran, however, he actually lived up to his promises, is starting to rip up the Iran deal and causing real problems. And so we just don't know whether these guys are screwing around with the global trading system for short-term bilateral advantage to achieve a point, or are they actually really going to risk destroying the whole edifice? Would you think it's helpful using the word smoot holy when the average tariff, I think, was about 40%? I mean, the average tariff right now is mid-single, single mid-digits single mid Yes, but most the whole the point is world. where are we going? And what made Smoot-Hawley bad was not just the size, it was the theory behind it. And yes, what we're doing now is very small in absolute terms, but it's the same damn theory. But the theory is behind it right now, and as you know, Gideon, is the end goal. The end game is that ultimately they want the Chinese to, to open up. They want the trade barriers down, don't they? Yes, but here's the question. Do they, well, actually, you say you know what they want. We don't actually know what they want because well, a lot of this is just They've been quite clear about it, haven't they? What? They've been quite clear about what they want. They want the Chinese to open up. They want the trade barriers down. Yes, but that's a short-term goal. The question is, can that be achieved without destroying the entire long-term system? The U.S. has a major power in the system that has refused to use because it didn't want to use its power to extract bilateral rents from everybody else. It wanted to have a system that actually worked. What this administration is doing, whether it's dispute resolution procedures at the WTO, whether it's the trade things, whether it's trying to bring in national security, what they're basically doing is using every bit of leverage the United States can yeah. to extract gains from everybody else. And that is Maybe a short-term tactic that might work to achieve some positive goals for the United States, but it comes at the cost of the entire system being undermined going well, forward. Gideon, thank you so much. Gideon Rose, congratulations. Which world are we living in? Again, folks, and you've heard me say this before, Foreign Affairs Magazine, and Bill Lee was raving about it earlier with the Milken Institute. It's gonna, I'm going to call it 15 essays, and it's the kind of thing where you find three or four 
which are just jewels that really frame for you the debate. And your three or four essays can be different than John Farrow's, can be different than mine. But the answer is, you find a set of ideas in each issue. And John Farrow, I know you don't care with your 2020 Ronaldo vision, but actually the font's almost big enough where you can, mortals like me can actually read it. I also wear glasses, Tom. Jonathan, I've never been up there, but I am told you go up past Admiralty Island, and it is spectacular, and it's southern Alaska, above Vancouver, Juneau, Juneau, Alaska. Would you like to go? I, I Yeah, I sort of would. I mean, I don't, you know, have any, like, I don't have to be there tomorrow or anything like that, but very cool, you know. Joining us now from Juneau, Alaska, Priya Misra. With TD Securities, uh, Priya, uh, Pri, why are you in Juno? Is that where the the rate conundrum comes together? <laughs> uh, it, it's beautiful here, but uh, you know, I'm here to meet investors. Yeah. It's a huge macro week with the Fed and the ECB, um, so investors want to talk. But I have to say, it's a very cool place. It's light here, twenty hours a day. Yeah, so, well, well, I'm actually outside. That's the way it is yes, in the surveillance have... world for me and John Farrell. The sun comes up early. Uh, I thought well. it was dark for <laughs> us 20 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, we're right in now. In the fixed on, income market, right. We're down it off Argentina dark. there. Well, you look at the, the volatility of the Argentinian peso, Mexico out of 21 and such. I would suggest much of this comes across as Draghi yesterday and waiting until this is the summer of 2019 to do anything, but it's really the combination of what we saw from Powell and Draghi, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think um, EM is sort of having this, um, I would say, almost triple whammy here. So they've had the high real rates in, in the U.S. Uh, um, then they've had uh, ECB ending QE and, you know, all the idiosyncratic issues as well. And, and the dollar doesn't help because if the dollar continues to strengthen and U.S. rates continue to rise, you know, I think money is going to come out of risk assets everywhere. And so EM is one of those. Italy was another one. Who knows, you know, what's next? But I think that's the problem with, with EM here. Even the solid fundamental uh, EM economies, I think, are potentially going to struggle here because in a, in a, in a less liquid market, if, if you do want to get out of EM, you sort of sell everything. Priya, it's hard to see why the Federal Reserve should back off anytime soon, especially when they telegraphed what they were going to do very, very well and from a mile away. And and what was the response from Argentina to raise their inflation target? The response from Turkey, the president, Erdogan, saying he wanted lower rates. They've hardly helped themselves, have they? Right. Now, I think... Um you know, EM has to deal with, um, oh, you know, what do they do with outflows? So as as you start getting this risk of outflows picking up, um, I think they have to start raising <clears throat> interest rates, but it actually hurts the economy. So they're in a, in a little bit of a bind, I think, uh, with the fact that global QE is ending. This, and I think that's, you know, when, when you talk about Chair Powell, I think the Fed absolutely wants to keep hiking from a domestic standpoint. But right. they have to look at global spillovers. And if financial conditions tighten in EM, at some point, it is going to spill over into the U.S. as well. Within this is what inflation-adjusted rates do. What is the TD call on what American real rates will do, given this massive transatlantic divergence? 
Right. So I think we're a little bit out of consensus. I am long ten-year real rates. I think um, U.S. ten-year rates above one percent are a problem, even for the domestic economy, because if you look at real wages, we've had no real, uh, um, uh, you know. Growth in real wages. I think that's the problem. So if mortgage rates rise, um, you know, even if the economy is strong, I'm not sure the consumer can actually keep paying up higher mortgage rates. So we've had a, a, a decent rise in real rates. I think at some point it's it's going to be self-limiting. I think one percent ten-year real rates is that level beyond which I think the economy is going to struggle to handle um, uh, further increases. Priya, we've talked to you about the curve in the past. Two's tens has now broken down to about 36 basis points. We just keep grinding lower. And I hear a lot of investors and a lot of our listeners will always write in and say, it's different this time. It's different this time. You don't get an economic signal from the curve in the way that you did, say, a decade ago and change. Priya, talk to me about the signal you take from the difference between a two-year note yield and a 10-year yield of 36 basis points. Right. So I think there are some special factors this time around. The fact that the U.S. Treasury is, uh, is largely issuing in the front end, that's a big difference. Uh, um, the other thing is uh, is all the pension demand. So uh, there are some idiosyncratic factors, but I would say still the curve is the single best indicator. The, if, if you looked at any one market indicator, the best indicator of a recession has been the curve. Um, and, and, and there I would just say that it's the market's sort of uh, lack of conviction around how much can the Fed go above neutral and what exactly is, is neutral. So I think uh, what was interesting was even though uh, Draghi actually potentially increased forward guidance, the Fed took a lot of that forward guidance out. So what the market's saying is, sure, the Fed can hike two more times this year, a couple more next year. Beyond that, if the Fed continues to sort of uh, uh, jam on the brakes, I think the economy is going to slow down. Therefore, the curve will continue to flatten. So that's why I think there is a macro signal here. The curve gets to zero. I think we're looking at the market saying, don't go further. What does all this mean for something as as fundamental as real estate in the mortgage rate? Because I I get the curve dynamics and the 10-year is not going to move that much. But does it mean that mortgage rates stay lower than we'd normally think? I think lower on a historical basis, but I do think mortgage spreads are going to widen. The Fed is letting the mortgage portfolio run off, so that is going to put put some upward pressure on mortgage rates. Mortgage rates have already Mm -hmm. risen a a pretty big amount. So I think, and along with the SALT thing, it's still too early to tell what does SALT do to home prices. Um, But that plus um, higher mortgage rates, I think it starts becoming... um, a pretty big uh, headwind for the housing market. Priya Misra, great to catch up with you. TD Securities yes. Head of Global Interest from Rate Juneau, Strategy. Alaska. Uh, from Juneau, Alaska. Yeah. Uh, meeting investors. Our interview of the day on corporate finance and corporate transactions. Craig Moffat. Moffat Nathanson. We are honored that Michael Nathanson would brief us 48 hours ago, and now Craig Moffat does as well. Craig, uh, Lex in the FT today had a price to EBITDA of 17 times for this transaction. Comcast is trading at seven times uh, EBITDA. Uh, This trade goes at 17 times right now. Are either of these parties going to overpay for Fox? It's a great question, Tom, and I'll tell you, you know, what, what the Comcast stock is, is re, has rebounded a bit in the last few days, I think in, in part because people are at least gratified that they didn't open with too crazy a bid to start this process. 
Um, but look, let's face it, Comcast stock has been shellacked over the last couple of months, and it's precisely because of that valuation disparity yeah. that you talked about. Investors <clears throat> are frustrated at why didn't they just buy back their own stock if they're going to lever up? Why didn't they buy back yeah. their own stock, which would have been vastly more accretive than this transaction? Within your wonderful six-page note this morning, we protect the copyright folks of our client, our guests. We're not going to send it out to you. Call Moffat Nathanson. Craig, you made very clear that the way this is accretive is through EBITDA and operating income growth. It's revenue growth, yes, but it's really about $2 billion of synergies and keeping the operating income line going. How does Mr. Roberts do that if he wins? Well, look, let's first, to to put a finer point on it, the biggest reason it's accretive is because borrowing costs, although they've come up a little bit, are still so low. And so almost anything is accretive if you're willing to really lever your balance sheet. And again, that's why I say while it's accretive, it would have been vastly more accretive to lever up and buy back stock if that's what you wanted to do because of that big valuation disparity. Now, that said, what do you do with this asset? Um, I think what what Brian Roberts and Comcast is looking at is, remember, this is in the context of also having made a bid for the, the global distribution assets of Sky, which are connected but also somewhat separate. I think he sees them both as necessary um, but insufficient independently um, pieces of a strategy that that is about trying to go global with distribution and then dramatically ramping up proprietary content production in the hope that you can create a model very much like Netflix, where you produce your own content in your own studio and distribute it to your customers via your own distribution platform. To do that, you need a lot of scale. And I think that's what he's looking at with both of these pieces. Craig, I was looking at at the numbers and uh, Comcast would become the second most indebted non-financial company in the U.S. if it goes through with this transaction, boosting its debt from $65 billion to $160 billion. It just raises a question, especially at a time when the media outlook is so uncertain. What's the likelihood that Comcast gets downgraded substantially and ends up as an over-leveraged company that has to split up and is, is struggling? Well, it's it's certainly a legitimate risk. You know, it's funny. I, I downgraded AT and T on the Time Warner transaction a couple of days ago for exactly that same reason. Now, there is a, a pretty stark difference here. AT and T is shrinking revenues and it's shrinking uh, EBITDA even after you add um, Time Warner. And and in that case, you're levering to a similar leverage point of close to four times EBITDA if you counted the right way at AT AT&T. But again, it's a shrinking asset. So that's a much more precarious situation than Comcast. But look, Comcast would be in a, at least in a similar conversation of taking a business that is somewhat cyclical and now much more exposed to advertising, so more cyclical, um, and therefore, obviously, cyclical businesses tend to warrant lower levels of leverage because you have to be able to manage through recessions. Um, but also um, where you have a lot of, of secular challenges and uncertainties about the outlook of the core business, which in this case, the core business for Comcast would no longer be the cable business. Right. It would just as much be a media business. And that's a business with real question marks. Comcast, I guess that the, the sort of flip way of asking this is Comcast leadership has said that they will pay down uh, debt pretty quickly. Do you buy that? 
Yeah, I, I do. Um, Comcast is not a company that historically has been comfortable with extremely high levels of debt, and they have levered up in the past to make acquisitions. Um, it's a business that generates a lot of cash, and while they do pay a dividend, again, draw the contrast to AT&T, the challenge for AT&T is that the dividend is so high that it gives them a lot less flexibility to pay down debt in the early years after the transaction. Comcast would at least have more cash flow to pay down debt, and that's why I think on balance, um, you probably could persuade the, way, the rating agencies that a temporary trip to four times leverage, say, um, would be just that. Well, it would be temporary, and that with a clear path to um, to using those cash flows to to pay down debt, you could probably maintain, even well, after a downgrade, maintain an investment grade rating. We've got 10 more questions. We can't do them right now. Craig Moffat, look forward to speaking to you soon. And again, thank you to Mr. Moffat and Michael Nathanson, Moffat Nathanson, for their uh, perspective and conversation this week on this historic uh, transaction. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.